we're going to preach from a, a pretty controversial topic today. Uh, and so, uh, being such a controversial topic, I thought the best thing to do would be to turn it over to you. And so, the first thing I want us to do is just to turn someone close to you uh, and give each other some loving advice. Um, so, choose one of four areas to give advice in. Um, advice for being a good husband, advice for being a good wife, advice for being a good child or youth, and advice for being a good parent. So husbands, wives, kids, parents. But here's the catch. You have to do it in 15 words or less. That's it. You only get 15 words or less. Advice for being a good husband, good wife, good kid or good parent, 15 words or less. Over to you. Just one minute. All right, bring it back in. I wonder how you went with that task. Was that easy? Did anyone find it easy? Anyone, anyone got this down pat? No, most of us found it difficult. Have we got any relationship gurus in the church? No, okay, we're in trouble. All right. Uh, if you don't have the Bible open, so grab that. Uh, and if you, don't, you haven't brought a Bible, there's blue Bibles uh, on the chairs around. <coughs> so today we're in uh, Colossians 3. Uh, verse 18 to 4, verse 1. So as you find the passage, uh, the reason I got you to try and summarize, summarize this relationship advice in 15 words or less is because that is exactly what Paul does in this passage. He gives uh, just the smallest summary uh, for wives, husbands, children's fathers, less than 50 words. But the 50 words or less, and then there's about 100 or so for slaves and masters, what we're going to see this morning is that they're absolutely groundbreaking. Uh, if listened to, they would change the whole culture of this little church, this little church in Colossae, to be gospel-shaped and to be more like Jesus. Because what this scripture shows us is that God uses more than men. He uses more than men. And first century culture thought, uh, so you know, the church in Colossae is first century, they thought that only men had value. But no, God uses all types of people. All types of people have value. All types of people are used to further his kingdom. So there are six categories that Paul mentions. Uh, wives, husbands, fathers, children, uh, slaves and masters. And we're going to look at them in pairs. I think the best way to look at them is in pairs, dealing with each pair one by one. Uh, that Paul mentions marriages and relationships should tell us something. It tells us that in the context of Paul writing to the Colossians, there was work to be done in this area. That is, even in a church that Paul was thankful for, uh, that he praised the Lord for, and mentioned their faith, their hope, their love, marriages and families still need to be redeemed. Every married person here, uh, you ought to know by now, and if you haven't figured it out yet, uh, if you have one sinner and you have another sinner, it doesn't equal less sin. One plus one equals more sin. Marriages need to be redeemed. Family relationships need to be redeemed. And we're going to spend a bit of time in that family unit to start with. And then we're going to finish in the slaves and masters section. So starting in verses 18 and 19. I've got your Bibles. Follow along with me. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. I'd be willing to bet the first thing we notice in that passage is that word submit. Am I right? I think so. The silence tells me. 
We need to understand why the words that Paul gives to wives to submit sound appalling. We need to understand why they sound offensive to our ears. And I think there are two reasons that they're offensive to our understanding. So the first is, uh, we tell ourselves that happiness in this world is found in freedom and independence. So if Paul says that wives submit to their husbands, to us it sounds like he's denying them their freedom and independence and denying happiness to their wives. The second reason that I think this is offensive to us is that um, when we think of submission, uh, it is at a cultural understanding of lowering yourself. And to lower yourself is to diminish yourself. It's diminishing your worth. It's diminishing your status as a person. Uh, and so we need to think about this. We need to really sit down, think and understand through this. Uh, we think submission equals freedom. Uh, sorry, no freedom. <laughs> we think submission equals no freedom, no independence, and your worth is diminishing. Is it any wonder then that we think that Paul's words are offensive? Uh, and the offence that you would feel should be justified and would be completely justified if the biblical idea of submission meant that. We, we would be justified if that's what we thought it meant. We should take that offence seriously. If that's what Paul meant, we should be offended. And indeed, to our shame, uh, we've seen throughout history... Uh, and even in, in present history, churches and men have accepted this to be a reality in our past and even in our current climate. I've seen this with people I know even. Their husbands believe they have freedom to do whatever they like and whatever they tell their wives to do, they ought to do. Uh, they, they believe that they're superior to their wives. Uh, and it's quite tragic. And the problem for us is not that we're offended by those conclusions. The church has no issue, uh, it, it's not like we should think the church has no issue with that way of thinking, because we do. We do have issue. We should be offended and outraged by that, and the church takes issue with that. Uh, it would be wrong and offensive and unchristian even to make the conclusion that men are superior to women. Uh, in his commentary on Colossians, uh, there's a guy by the name of Mark Maynell. He defines submission this way. I really like it. One equal person's Voluntary acceptance of the authority of another equal person. So one equal person's voluntary acceptance of the authority of another equal person. I want to point out that the word submit is not the same word as obey. So in, in our passage today, wives are told to submit, kids and slaves are told to obey. They're different words, they have different meanings. So when a wife submits to a husband, it's not obedience that's being called to. Uh, it should never be submission to anything demeaning or diminishing or degrading. It's one equal person accepting the authority of another equal person. And here's the key. It's fitting in the Lord at the end of verse 18. It's fitting in the Lord. The submission card has been used uh, too many times. Uh, to demean, diminish, degrade women for centuries, and to our shame, uh, women even have thought that demeaning and diminishing and degrading treatment was not only acceptable but biblical. That's something that the church should wear to our shame. But it's not biblical. In fact, 
If women are being degraded or diminished or treated in a demeaning way, that's worldly. That's unchristian. That's unbiblical. What Paul is really reminding the church here is that Jesus has greater authority than the husband. Jesus has greater authority than the husband. That means if the husband is asking for things not in the Lord, submission shouldn't happen. Persistent uh, physical, sexual, psychological abuse, self-centeredness, greed, pride, assertiveness, meet my needs, serve me, fulfill my desires, bow to my will. Submission to that is unbiblical. Because none of that is in the Lord. None of that is fitting as is in the Lord. And at the heart of a wife submitting to a husband is verse 19 that a husband would actually love his wife, respect his wife, serve his wife, love his wife. In most households in Colossae, just to give like a bit of cultural understanding, the husband, the father, and the master would have all been the same person. And the advice to this man uh, from the ethical minds of, of the world around them would have been, uh, treat your wife, your kids, and your slaves as possessions. That's what would have been seen. That's, that, that was what was happening in the world around them. Treat them as possessions so that you can get the best out of them. Not once does Paul ever suggest to treat the wives, kids, or slaves in a way that would give them more control. Not once. In fact, not once does Paul ever tell the men to make the women, the, the kids, or the slaves do anything. Not once does he tell them to do anything. Not once a husband's told to rule their wives, dominate over their wives, uh, or even lead their wives, although they are supposed to do that. But what they're told to do is love them. Isn't that so profound uh, for a culture that didn't know love? Now, in our culture, we know, well, we think we know love pretty well. And it's pretty easy to say, I love you to someone, isn't it? It's much harder to actually show love to someone. It's much harder to make the words of love a reality. And I think Paul is showing the reality that marriages need to be redeemed for this church. They need to be redeemed for the Colossians. Also, he's showing the reality that marriages need to be redeemed for us. For us. Uh, Paul says for husbands not to be harsh with their wives. The fact that he says that means that it needed to be said. That phrase, don't be harsh, harsh with your wives, can also be translated as don't become bitter towards your wives. Uh, there's a little journal article that was released in 2014 uh, from the Library of Medicine. And it was on the reasons for divorce for people who had been married over 16 years. You know what the top three reasons all had to do with? Bitterness. The top three reasons. How tragic the reality is of bitterness in marriage. Don't be bitter. Don't be harsh. But instead, love. And verses 18 and 19 have to be seen as a couple. They're hand in hand. You know, wives submitting and husbands loving will only ever work together. The fulfillment of each side of the wife and husband is 100% dependent on each other. So there's uh, verses 18 and 19, hand in hand. 
hard call. And, and I imagine as the church heard it, a shocking call from what they knew. But he continues in the family relationships. And we get to verses 20 to 21 with children and fathers. So let me read that quickly. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Isn't it a surprise? It's a surprise to me that children are addressed at all. But in speaking to children, I think Paul is saying children are a part of the church. They are a part of this. They're a part of the church. They belong in the church. They have a place and a role in the church. Uh, They're not just possessions. They are people. And here's a part of the letter addressed specifically to the kids of the church. What does that tell you? It can only tell us that kids are meant to be here, that they're an important part of the church. And not only do kids have a huge part to play in Christian family dynamics, uh, but they have a huge part to play in the Christian community. And I think uh, we need to be clear on what classifies as a child as well. So we hear that word children in our culture and we think of little kids. Uh, however, they didn't have a word for, well, our culture didn't have a word for youth except for the last hundred years. So I think Paul is addressing anyone who still lives at home under the care and guidance of their parents. Um, Another way you could say that is a a dependent, you know, someone who's not independent of their family yet. Someone still getting instruction, discipline, correction and care from their parents would be considered a child. That would include many uh, of the kids and youth here in our church. This one's for you guys. And what's the instruction? Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now, immediately, uh, I know what you're all thinking, in everything? You know, I was a youth once, and I know exactly what you'd be thinking right now. Sure, I'll obey in in everything. Um, It it should be said that everything doesn't include abuse, obviously. Uh, It doesn't include harsh treatment. But what everything is is understanding that Jesus is changing you. Uh, And so too, Jesus is changing your parents. And you need to hear that God has placed your parents in your life for a reason. They're there because they're there to care for you. That's their role. So when they ask you to do or consider something, uh, it's not off-handed or it shouldn't just be off-handed. It's actually for your good. Uh, If it's true that every aspect of our lives need to be submitted to Christ, then we have to take um, the fact that we listen to our parents seriously. Uh, When defiance and disobedience is a regular part of family, family dynamics struggle. They they are hard. It's dysfunctional at the home life. Because defiance and disobedience causes friction. Uh, When I tell my son, this this happened this week, when I told my son Xander to go and get ready for bed, uh, he pulled the toy out and started playing with it. It causes friction. It causes dysfunction. Uh, Again, this happened this week. When I tell my daughter, you have to put pants on today, you can't wear a dress because it's cold, and she yells at me saying, but I want to wear a dress, it causes friction. And Paul's appeal to kids uh, and youth to obey in everything is really a challenge for children to have an obedience of just doing something because the parents said so. It's got to be deeper than that. The motivation is actually 
not just because the parents said so. Colossians says it's pleasing to the Lord. It's pleasing to the Lord. Uh, There has to be a trust that when your parents tell you something, it's because God has put them in your path to be responsible for you. So when you listen uh, to them and obey them, you've got to trust that what they're asking you is for your good, and that pleases the Lord. Uh, Ephesians 5 talks a lot more in depth about this topic, uh, which is also a letter of Paul's. And in Ephesians 5, it mentions that there's a distinction between obedience and honour. And I think that means that in the age of dependence, we need to obey. uh, But in the age of independence, we need to honour. And I think the question then becomes, well, how do you know uh, which camp you're in? Uh, How do you move from obedience to honour? Or if you're a parent, how do you know when the relationship's changed? How do you you look at the relationship between you and your kids and decide uh, if they're still in the the camp of obedience or honour? And that's, uh, that's something you have to figure out together as a family. Paul, Paul then has a special word for the parents, uh, particularly the dads in verse 21. Uh, it's as if Paul just knows dads, I think, when he reads this. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Oh, boy. Hands up if you're guilty of provoking your kids. Oh, there's only four of us. Oh, you, you guys are doing well. Of course, this isn't just for the dads. Uh, Mums, you need to hear this too. Uh, But what is it that Paul specifically has in mind? It's behaviour that brings discouragement. It's behaviour that drags our kids down. It's it's words and actions that hurt our kids. Uh, I'll be the first to put up my hand uh, to say that that this prods me. Uh, Our family life would be much better if I took this seriously. Our family life would be much better if I didn't discourage my kids or embitter them. I think we've all failed at this at some point. Us parents don't make it easy for our kids to obey. We don't. We don't make it easy. Uh, Often we we give a, a command and we say, do it because I said so. It's not very helpful. Paul is reminding the follower of Jesus that a central part of discipleship is not to provoke our kids. Uh, One thing I've learnt about being a parent that I consider to be really important is I I always try and model an apology to my kids. Uh, I'm doing my kids a favour if they see that I'm not perfect. That's actually good for them. Uh, If they know I'm not perfect and I admit my mistakes, that's good. Because it's modelling to them that they're not always perfect and that they make mistakes too. So, So when I'm wrong, uh, they need to see from me that, that I'll apologise, that I'll admit to it, and I'll go to them and apologise to them. Because it's our God-given responsibility as parents to support our kids, encourage our kids, and admit to our kids when we're wrong. Well, uh, it's a bit of a drive-by, but we're going to keep going. The last group of people that Paul addresses is slaves and masters. Boy, what a controversial topic we have. And as we tackle these last few verses, I want you to think about how striking it is that Paul mentions this. Uh, This is the letter read to the Colossians. It was read to the whole church. It was read as people would have been sitting in a room, listening as a family, with the slaves in the room, with masters in the room. No one would have heard it. 
all in the same room listening to, to this letter. The fact that there were slaves in the room is culturally normal, we have to understand. And the first question I had uh, when I came to this passage is, why didn't Paul just tell the church to stop slavery? Why didn't he just abolish slavery right then and there? He could have done it. Well, I think the reason uh, is uh, that, we, that, that I come to a passage like this, and perhaps you come to a passage like this with that question, uh, is because when you and I think of slavery, the first place we're transported back is to the 19th century slave trade. So racial slavery, um, cruelty, shameful institution, uh, which we know was brought down by William Wilberforce. And unlike the slavery we think of that was mostly racial at the time, the slavery from this part of history is different. It is different. Uh, for one, slavery wasn't about someone's race. Uh, someone could have been a slave because they were a prisoner of war. Uh, someone could have run out of money. And so it was, it was right in that culture to then sell yourself into slavery because you couldn't afford to look after yourself. Uh, in first century Roman courts, which is where we are in Colossians, um, slaves had rights. They had rights in court. And they could work their way out of slavery into freedom. And yes, um, of course, being a slave wasn't what someone would have wanted to be when they'd grown up. You know, it's not the question they would have answered uh, in school. But we do need to know it's different to the slavery we think of uh, when we hear the word slavery. Now, now, before you jump to conclusions that I might be saying that slavery is okay, I'm not. Uh, slavery still was seen as a positive thing in the culture, uh, in this part of life and history. It was a normal part of society. Uh, it's not okay, but it was seen as normal. Uh, and I think that uh, our culture makes the same mistakes, don't we? We have parts of our history, uh, even now, that we consider to be normal, uh, but that are not actually right. Uh, to put it in a way we understand, um, what does our world run on? Fossil fuel. Is this good or bad? We know it's, it's bad. Uh, we know that fossil fuel will eventually run out. We know that fossil fuel severely damages the environment. We might not like using it, but I imagine that the majority of us are using it when we get our cars and we come here. And uh, we know that as a society we need to move on from fossil fuel, but that change won't happen overnight. It's going to take time to move away from fossil fuels, uh, to, to head into and test more sustainable energy. It's just the way that it is right now though, isn't it? That we, that we live in a society that needs fossil fuel. So it is with slavery. Uh, to have a society without slavery would have been absolutely crazy to a first century person. Uh, but what we do see in these verses is that Paul is still going to flip slavery on its head with his words. As the letter was read to the church in Colossae, where do you think the slaves would have been in the room? Where, where would have they been? Uh, maybe sitting in the back, uh, maybe out of sight, you know, some, somewhere where they could be ignored. And then the words are read to the slaves. And these words are about to be read are so real. It would have been so real for the church to hear. We've, because we find out in chapter 4 that in this church, 
there's a runaway slave in the room, on Onesimus, and his master, Philemon, right there as, as the letter's being read. So what would you expect Paul to say to slaves and masters? Well, he addressed the slaves first. And uh, perhaps not surprisingly, the first thing that Paul insists on is obedience. They're serving a master and they need to do it, verse 22 says, with sincere hearts. Is that just? I'm sure the slaves just, just thought, so you, you, you're there to address us and you're just telling us to keep doing what we're doing? Look at, what verse, look at what verse 24 says. From the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So many, many slaves would have been lucky to have a day without being shouted at. Paul says, keep serving. There's a reward in heaven waiting for you. Uh, even in your service, serving with sincere hearts, there's hope given. Justice will be paid. The wrongdoer will be paid back for what he's done. There is no partiality. Remember, uh, Roman culture would assume that slaves were objects. They didn't have a soul. They were to be owned, human tools. Whatever you got your slave to do is what they will do. And it doesn't matter how you treat objects, doesn't it? Paul rejects that. Slaves are human beings. And if their masters are treating them poorly, badly, even humanely, he reminds them God will bring justice one day. The question on the lips of the slave, I think, would have been, well, then how do I obey? Because if I have a, a Lord and Master, but I now also have Jesus as my Lord and Master, how do I serve two masters? And Paul's response is telling them that uh, the obedience you have to have to your Master is not compromised by having Jesus as your Master. Uh, instead, it's the Lord who is the best Master. It's the Lord who is going to give you the reward at the end. It's the Lord that will redeem your service. So then what does Paul have to say to masters? Chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And I think this is where Paul flips slavery most on its head in this verse. It, it would have been very uncomfortable for, for any master, for any slave owner to hear this read publicly in front of the church. Treat your slaves justly and fairly. But they're just my human tools. No, no, no. They're people. What master would ever give fairness and justice to a slave? Well, it's the one whose heart has been transformed by Jesus. And this idea of slavery and owning slaves is so far removed from us uh, so I think that the, the best way that we can think about this, which I'm sure we've heard sermons on before, uh, is society, employment. For us, it would be fitting to change slave and master to employee and employer. Imagine a workplace that is just and fair. Uh, not, not just trying to cut corners uh, or get the work done. Uh, not for the boss who just earns more and more money, but showing that the gospel can change even our, our boss. Our, the gospel can change even our work habits. The gospel can change even our practices. That's a world we should long for, contribute to, and let the gospel change us so that we can make it that way. Wives, husbands, kids, parents, 
slaves, masters. We need to draw this passage together. We've got a few things that I want to point out as we finish up. These verses are a cultural challenge for the Colossian church. Remember, this culture was a man's world. In Paul giving instructions for our household, he is calling the church in Colossae to treat not just men as valuable, because that's what the culture said was valuable. But he's saying it's not just men that are valuable. There are all people have value. People are never to be seen as possessions. Uh, people are, are created in God's image and are valuable. Now, for you and I, we perhaps don't have this issue um, uh, of, of being a man's world. Uh, but I think we do have an issue, don't we? Because do we see God's? Uh, do we see people as made in God's image and valuable? The hardest people to love at times are your family, aren't they? The hardest person to get along with at times can be your boss. Uh, This passage is pointing out that the day-to-day relationships need to be redeemed. Uh, Paul is doing two other things in this passage too, though, that are worth mentioning. So look at the categories of people mentioned. Wives, husbands, kids, parents, slaves, masters. I I imagine that most of your Bible translations, when you look down in the Bible, uh, and and it gives you like, like a heading, at the beginning of chapter 3, verse 18, uh, the one that the Bible I have in front of me, uh, which is probably the one that you, you guys have in front of you, it says, Rules for Christian Households. Why are slaves and masters added in the Christian household? Paul is making a, a huge statement when he puts slaves and masters in the Christian household. It's making a huge statement about how you treat slaves and how you see them. Paul is making a huge statement to say that women and kids and your slaves are not possessions, they're family. Isn't that revolutionary to think that your slave is to be treated like family? That is groundbreaking, that a slave would be considered family, not as a possession. Uh, Family. And this is such good news for the slave And it's such challenging news for any man who was listening. The gospel is so big that even a slave can be saved and redeemed into a family. The last thing I want to uh, point out, just uh, have one more look again at the whole passage. Uh, So verse 18, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Verse 20, children obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Verse 22, uh, bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, continuing on fearing the Lord. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1, masters treat your bond servants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Can you, can you notice the repetition of who is the Lord? Can you, can you see the repetition of who is the master? It's not the man. It's Jesus. Jesus is the Lord. Paul reminds them it's not the man who is in charge here. It is Jesus who is in charge. How could any man from Colossae who is used to uh, you know, uh, thinking that their, their whole family and their slaves are his possessions, how could any man finish this letter imagining that he is the Lord over his little empire? It's Jesus who is the Lord. It's Jesus who holds authority over the household. It's Jesus 
not the man. And that is completely countercultural. In a man's world, this is the gospel changing the script of an oppressive society. It's amazing. Now, what does that all mean for us? It shows us that it's only a holy and loving and merciful God that could make these changes. It's only God who would come and challenge and change cultural norms. It is only God who can redeem relationships so that even a slave would be considered as family. It is only God who teaches us to hate sin and turn from it and trust in him again. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, we had a plaque in our house and it sat uh, on the inside of our front door. I wonder if any of you guys uh, had this in your homes. Um, Sarah, would you be able to put this up? Oh, you have? Great. Uh, so it says, Christ is the head of this house, the unseen guest at every meal, the silent listener to every conversation. Uh, I actually found this on Google, but this is the exact sign that we had <laughs> in our house, even to the, to the colour. <laughs> What this sign drives home for anyone who had it in their house was that Jesus knows everything. Uh, nothing is done without Jesus' knowledge. Nothing surprises Jesus because he is the head of the house. And if it wasn't for God's redemptive work of grace in our lives, that sign would be really scary, wouldn't it? And in the home, if anyone abuses their power, that statement should be scary. But more than scare us, Jesus changes us. He changes us. He changes us to be better than what culture says, uh, to be better than to listen to and follow the desires of our hearts. Jesus changes us, redeems us. He moves us out of darkness and into light, out of thinking that people are possessions and thinking of people as family. He stirs us to have a home that is truly gospel-centered, and different to what society says is normal. So the question remains, I think, for us, is what relationships are you struggling with? What relationships are you struggling with at the moment? Is it, is it a husband-wife relationship? Is it a child-parent relationship? Is it a sibling-to-sibling -sibling relationship? Is it a work relationship? Is it a relationship with a friend or a fellow believer? What is it from today's passage has called you to say, I need to move to change. I need to sit down and actually work through this. And how will the gospel help you work that out in your relationship? Let me pray. Well, Father, in all relationships that we have, Lord, would you transform them? Would you redeem them? Would you change them? In the, the relationships where we're struggling, please, Father, would you make us more like Jesus? In the relationships that need tender care and the relationships that you're bringing uh, to mind right now, we pray that you would challenge us to actually deal with them so that the people that we're struggling with, we wouldn't see them as enemies, but that we would see them like you see them, as family. Make us more like Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.